Lots of buttons to press. Okay. So, uh, for two, two weeks, uh, we're doing the, this sermon called The Suffering Servant. We're following uh, one of the prophecies of Isaiah 53, uh, and we look at this, this sort of two-part sermon. So, uh, verses 1 to 6 today, and then 7 to 12 uh, next week. And I think this is an unusual, a very unusual uh, place to go at Christmas. Um, I, I've tried to find churches that have read Isaiah 53 over Christmas. Uh, it's not common, uh, and Isaiah 53 is normally read around Easter um, because it speaks of the, the, the sin on the cross, it speaks of Jesus' sacrifice more so than his birth. Um, and so it's, it is sort of unusual to be talking about Isaiah 53 at this time. Uh, and, uh, uh, an unusual route, I would say. But we've, we've become so accustomed to telling the Christmas story that it, it almost seems like someone has started a tradition uh, of, of telling the messy but nice part of Jesus' life just because it's Christmas. Um, and and we, we're almost aligning the story of Jesus sometimes with, with the, the nice things of Christmas, the feelings that we get out of Christmas. Uh, and, and I think in some way that message has become slightly distorted so uh, I think it's right that we maintain uh, a focus on the truth of the reason why Jesus came Uh, and whilst it isn't a a primary issue there are many debates when Christ was born Uh, and if you look up on the internet you'll find that people say it's the 25th of December Um, when you really look into it more deeply uh, it's possibly more likely even uh, that it's September uh, because of the, the the shepherds and when they were farming and when they were uh, and there's all sorts of real deep meat like actual facts behind why it might have been earlier but it isn't a primary issue but it is interesting uh, that we see that it isn't uh, necessarily uh, a Christmas day that Jesus was born what's important is we, we celebrate that Jesus was born and that that's really important so it's not a primary issue but it's just something to be aware of I think um, and, I, and I think in that sense, when I was looking at this, I thought maybe, maybe we need to change the, the, what we call it, the Christmas story, uh, and maybe change it to the autumn story. But it doesn't have that same effect, does it? You call it the autumn story, it sounds really, uh, you know, it's the autumn story, isn't it? Um, and, and so I thought, no, it's not going to work. But we're, we're going to call it the Christmas story, because that's what everyone seems to call it. Um, but today we look at the purpose of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what we need to understand is that the birth of Christ serves the ultimate purpose of paying for mankind's sinful, broken nature. To carry the illness of all mankind so that all mankind could be healed and forgiven. Let's read Isaiah 53, verse 1 to 6. And it says this. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the out of dry ground he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him nothing in his appearance that we should desire him he was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain like one from whom people hid their faces he was despised and we held him in low esteem surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering yet we considered him punished by God stricken by him and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We are all, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And you can see why um, 
This isn't a typical Christmas message. But let's have a look. Uh, Isaiah, uh, I'll give you a bit of background, was from a royal family. He was a prophet, uh, primarily to the kingdom of Judah, uh, which passed through repeated seasons of rebellion and revival. He authored the book that bears his name, and it says between 739 and 681 BC, uh, and scholars point to numerous times people in the New Testament, especially Jesus, quoted from Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah spans the ages from the biblical past of God's people to the hope of Israel's bright future with the coming Messiah in New Jerusalem. He is sometimes called the evangelical prophet because of his emphasis on the Messiah. What's interesting is that there's potentially two uh, theories around how uh, Isaiah wrote this book. One is that um, Isaiah was wrote the whole book and he was speaking in a, as if he was in the future already. Um, possibly something like Revelation type approach with John. Uh, or the, the, the other theory is that he was uh, alive for a certain time in writing some of it and then he, he's passed it on to his, his disciples and his disciples carried on uh, the writing of Isaiah. Uh, you don't need to, it, there's not one of those is primary, you don't need to side one or the other. Uh, there's just some the interesting facts that come out of Isaiah that, that can help you to understand maybe how this text was written. But regardless, it's written by people, sorry, by God through people. That's what's really important, and that's what we must acknowledge. But Isaiah 49 to 55, which is kind of within the section we're looking at, is all about the servant. The servant has been sent to fulfill God's mission. He's been sent to restore Israel and be a light to the nations. And when we join Isaiah 53, what we find is an interesting start to this chapter. Uh, what we find is, is previously uh, the prophet was in, in one context, and then we move to Isaiah 53 where he shifts to a different context. Uh, and, and now what, what appears to be happening is that Isaiah is speaking in, in, in chapter 53 as if a representative of a group of people. And specifically it's it's understood that he's uh, representing the nation of Israel. Uh, and, and that's what we look at here today. And what we find is acknowledgement of its sin and recognises that the servants suffered for them. And so this group is representing acknowledgement uh, that this servant, it's always called the servant, suffered for their sins and iniquities, which is what we read there. But much of the time, this first verse in Isaiah has mostly been translated... Uh, is as if the group who are speaking these words are saying, how can they not believe what we are saying is true? And I'll show you this verse. But in the first verse, it says, uh, let me go back. It says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And if you look at, I've been looking at commentaries, uh, all sorts of research in the, in, the, in the original text. And what is it, what is it they're trying to say? Because some, some of these lines in the Bible What's the intent? When you have a question mark, is it that they're making a statement to other people or is it that they're acknowledging to themselves? And so what we find is that there is an understanding, actually. I've gone too far. There is an understanding um, that there's, they're, looking, they're acknowledging to themselves how could we not have seen this? How could we not have understood this account and I'll tell you why that is we look at a closer context uh, of this verse and there's a phrase which says our report 
uh, and I'll show you this in the verses, but it says, uh, our report can mean the report which we deliver. There's a context here. The two concepts are quite separate. One of them is, do we speak, are we preaching to people about why can't you believe it? Or are they saying, how could we not see this in the first place? Let's look at Isaiah 52, verse 13 to 15. It says this, see my servant, this is just before, see my servant will act wisely, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him, for what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand." So the context of this previous, just to give us a little bit of context of Isaiah 53, uh, the context of this previous verse to Isaiah 53 speaks more of a report delivered to the group, of an announcement that was made in this chapter, in chapter 52. And so probably, and this is a really good translation, uh, this is in the New English translation, uh, it's who would have believed what we just heard? When was the Lord's power revealed through him? And so what's happening, one theory, and I think this is more in line, I personally believe this is what they're saying, they themselves are sinners. There's a recognition that they themselves have sinned against God uh, and they know that there's a, there's a servant coming to take, to take the, the punishment of their iniquities. They themselves are sinners who've repented and finally seen the light. Rather than preaching to someone else, so speaking of a revelation that they themselves have experienced. And when we look at the second part of that first verse, what we see is a metaphor for military power. In this particular translation, it says, when was the Lord's power revealed through him? And in NIV, uh, it says, um, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What's really interesting about that, which I didn't realize, is the arm of the Lord is, is, a, is, is translated as a kind of military power and might. If you look further into Isaiah, what you'll see, I think it's Isaiah 63, what you will find is this, this, this display of, of God's power that he would he has come and brought his wrath to his people before, that he speaks of what he's done before this because his people have been against him. And so what you'll find is this, this, this arm of the Lord is actually a, a description of military type powers. is is like a, a wrath of God uh, that it speaks of. It's a description of the Lord as a warrior who takes up arms and destroys his enemies. But what they're saying here is that they have not seen that military power at work in this servant. Instead, what we, we will see uh, is the power of might in the form of a meek, suffering servant. A difference to us, certainly, not to God, but to us is certainly a change in that now what is coming is a meek uh, what appears to be a meek and weak servant of God. And so that's what we're going to see when we look at Isaiah. That's what we're going to see when we look at the gospel. That's what we're going to see when we look at the cross. But the power and the might of Jesus, of the servant, is not compromised. For the servant, Jesus Christ, who is God, is the only one who is able to take the consequence of sin upon himself. So even in his show of meekness, his show of weakness, he is not meek, he is not weak. Does this make sense? We always, we always know there's a sort of contradiction or what appears to be a contradiction uh, of, how, of how Jesus is. When he's on earth, he's, he's very gracious. He seems this weak man. 
And in fact, he's not. But he comes in this meekness in order to speak to people who are meek, in order to speak to people who want, who need salvation. Comes in meekness, but his meekness is in strength. I think it's something that we would all struggle to do. Um, but all the same, he takes the appearance of weakness and insignificance. And Isaiah describes him as a tender plant that is weak and vulnerable. And indeed, Jesus grew up uh, and increased in wisdom and stature. Luke 2, verse 52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Gracious that he would do that. Gracious uh, that who is God would still grow in stature, would still grow in wisdom, would still uh, be in favor of men. But that's all because of God, not because of the men around him. He wasn't forced into it. That's, that's a grace coming out. It's a show of grace, show of welcoming. And so what appears to be weak and vulnerable is strong in the Lord. Paul speaks of this principle as well. He speaks of the principle following the pattern of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 9 to 11, uh, two, sorry, 12, 9 to 11, he said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. You drove me to it. I ought to have been condemned by you, for I am not in the least inferior, at uh, least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. The principle here is to show how Christ aligns with our weaknesses so he can show that even when we are weak in Christ, we are far from it. What appears to be, from a worldly point of view, weak is strong in Christ. And what Isaiah does is speak of Jesus as almost an insignificance because he says they hated him, they didn't like him, they, 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 they hate. It's not just they dislike, it's not just they just ignored him, they don't like him. They hate him. Something that people will have to look at harder and deeper than just the superficial appearance of Jesus. And this is what separates us here. Are we willing to look past what we see and look at what is being presented to us through the bigger picture of the gospel, through the bigger picture of Christ's death and resurrection? Because Jesus was not a man of beauty, it says. He wasn't particularly attractive. He wasn't ugly. But he certainly would not be revered for his looks. And we do find today, don't we, if we look at any movie, uh, going back as far as you can find the first movie about Jesus, uh, that you'll find that most people cast in that role have chiseled chins, have really great looks, uh, and yet, uh, um, and, and the problem until more recent times was that it was a white person. That clearly is not the case. <laughs> because Jesus was not white. So there is, a, there is a problem there already. However, what we find is people cast actors because they're well-known, because they're people that would draw them to the movie, and yet, in fact, Jesus would not be of that nature. He would not be that attractive. He would probably, I would argue, be average. Something insignificant, something people would not take seriously unless you scratched under the surface. It needed people to scratch just beneath the surface of Jesus' appearance 
to not follow or believe in Jesus for what he looked like or the signs he performed. Alan Redpath is a well-known British evangelist, pastor and author, and he says this, he says, this means that when we try to attract people to Jesus through formal attractiveness or beauty, we're using methods that run counter to the nature of Jesus. In quotes, as these days, it appears that we must dress up the gospel to make it attractive. We have to use the methods of technique which must be smart, well-presented, streamlined. There must be something about the presentation of the gospel that will appeal to people, to what is called the modern mind. I wonder if we stop to think that in our efforts to make the gospel message attractive, we are drawing a curtain across the face of Jesus in his humiliation. The only one who can make him attractive is the Holy Spirit. That's a, that's a great quote. Part of Jesus' unattractiveness was that he was a man of suffering or a man of sorrows, it says. He would express joy. Of course he would. Uh, there, are, there are times we can see that he would express joy. But the servant Jesus would know sorrow and grief more than any person, more than any of us in this room, more than anyone you know, more than anyone in the world, he would know sorrow more than anyone. And this sorrow, it wasn't self-pity, but one that was born out of a sorrow for others and a desperate condition of humanity. Imagine that you're the only person, person in quotes, who understands the true sorrow of humanity. We get glimpses of this because it is hard for us, who are also part of experienced sorrow, to look at, the, look at sorrow as the whole of mankind. We look at pockets of sorrow, pockets of sadness. Yet Jesus sees all of that together. Jesus, God, sees all of that. The sorrow of mankind, of humanity. Whilst our sorrow tends towards self-pity, Jesus was the only one who was able to stand outside and look in at the sorrow of humanity itself. Spurgeon, which we've got a couple of today, he says this, he was also a man of sorrows. For the variety of his woes, he was a man not only, not of sorrow only, but of sorrows. All the sufferings of the body and of the soul were known to him. The sorrows of the man who actively struggles to obey, uh, the sorrows of the man who sits still, and passively endures the sorrows of the lofty he knew, for he was the king of Israel, the sorrows of the poor he knew, for he had not, he had not where to lay his head. Sorrows relative uh, and sorrows personal, sorrows mental and sorrows spiritual, sorrows of all kinds and degrees assailed him. Affliction emptied his quiver upon him, making his heart the target of all conceivable woes. Imagine if you gathered up everyone's sorrow together and I, I can only describe it this way uh, that, that you'll get a glimpse of what was on Jesus' heart is that the sorrow every single sorrow you can imagine sits on his heart so he's a man of sorrows for that reason because he sees everything he sees everyone's sorrow everyone's hurt everyone's pain all together that's something we just cannot fathom I cannot get because I, I me as a, as a broken person as we all broken we can't, we, we, we empathise, we try to sympathise, but it, we can't take on everyone's, everyone's sorrow. And yet Jesus takes on everyone's. He knows everyone inside and out. Because of this man of sorrows, man of average appearance, he would be despised. Because of perceived absence of charisma, he would be held in low esteem. 
but all for a purpose. To show that physical and perceived beauty were and are but of a temporary nature. That mankind continues to look for meaning in what is vanishing. Only those that would trust and believe that the suffering servant was coming to take the pain of our sin upon himself would ultimately see beyond the superficial. Even those that followed Jesus in the time of his earthly ministry, uh, most of those, we would say, would turn, if not all of them, would turn on him uh, in the moment of the cross, the moment that he was sent to die. There are only very few people, if not one person, that really knew, uh, that really stood with Jesus. And that is because when we read the world, what we find are people that are taken by his acts rather than the reason for why he came. In the same way that I talk about why we're taken with the baby Jesus in a manger. If that's the only thing we take from it, we're not going to understand what's been done by Jesus, the cost, the price he's paid for sin. And even when you look at the baby in a manger, it is a horrible place. It has got animals in it. It is not pretty. Animals are not behaving themselves. They don't have etiquette around human beings. It is not the pretty picture that we sometimes paint when we put on the nativity. It is worse. It was a terrible, horrible, smelly place. But Jesus had to be born there. Jesus had to be born in that downtrodden place because that was who he was in that sense. He was coming for the downtrodden. He was coming not to be exalted as a king of the world, but as king of the universe, as God. And so he comes as lowly as possibly can be. So everyone has access to Jesus. Everyone who is lowly has access. He made our griefs and sorrows his own. He loaded them up and carried them as if they were his. I've I've never really really looked at that before he loaded them up on himself and he carried them as if it were his own that's when he went to the cross that was that was all the affliction we threw at him that was all the sin that was coming all the sin that was on top of him that was he was going to take on the group represented in Isaiah now realizes he suffered because of his identification with them Not simply because he was a special target of divine anger, but Jesus identified with the sinful. He wasn't sinful, he identified with them. And he said, basically, I'm going to paraphrase this, if you accept that you're a sinful person, Jesus has come for you. You can read that in the word, you can read it under, I've not come for the healthy, I've come for the sick. That's the right way around. (laughs) But why? Why must he suffer? Why? I never knew until yesterday uh, just how much uh, there is a dispute around the theory of um, the theology of substitution. Uh, I never realized that there were people that didn't believe that Jesus was a substitute for our sin, that he took on sin and paid the price for it. There are people who don't believe that that's the case. I haven't read a lot into it. I scratched the surface of it when I found it. Didn't have time to look into it fully at the, that point. But it's one of those things. I'm, I'm thinking, how can, why? Why can you not believe it? Why can you not believe that Jesus took on your sin and paid for that, 
paid for, paid for the wrath of God that was destined for us was on him and so he paid for sin. For our sin, not his own. It was only the Messiah that was capable of taking our place. There was no other way than to have the servants carry the servant carry our illness. But the result was that we would be healed. That word uh, that you find in that text is translated as forgiveness. That we would be forgiven. Meaning we would, we would be forgiven for the consequence of our inequities that were no longer on us but on Jesus. 1 Peter 2 verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds we have been forgiven. By his stripes we are healed. Spurgeon says this, with his stripes we are healed. Will you notice that fact? The healing of a sinner does not lie in himself, nor in what he is, nor in what he feels, nor in what he does, nor in what he vows, maybe promises, nor in what he promises. It is not in himself at all, but there, there at Gabbabath, <laughs> I, I did practice this word so many times, that place, where the pavement is stained with the blood of the Son of God, and, the, and that at Golgotha, where the place of a skull uh, beholds the agonies of Christ. It is in his stripes that, he, that the healing lies. I beseech thee, do not scourge thyself with his stripes. With his stripes we are healed. Do not underestimate by his stripes we are healed. What does his stripes mean? When we look at his stripes, it is the, it is the punishment that he took, the physical punishment, the stripes on his back, the whipping that he took, the punishment that he took by, by us. Those very stripes that appeared on his body after he was whipped and punished. By those stripes we are healed as he takes the punishment for sin again and again and again. With each stripe we are healed. As he takes it, we are healed. Isaiah states that we are in need of this healing and forgiveness because we have all turned to our own ways. We have turned to sin. Romans 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even within the Christian faith, we can still skew, we can still misunderstand this verse when it comes to applying it. We can be very easily tempted down the path of a my sin, your sin approach to living. I condemn your sin, I justify my sin. It is how the world works at the moment. It is unfortunate that we misinterpret that all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. What we see in Isaiah is in their sin, the group, as, as we're seeing here, was like sheep who had wandered from God's path. Sheep are stupid and headstrong animals. They tend not to think. They tend not to think about the actions that they take. And so they were vulnerable to attack. The guilt of their sin was ready to attack and destroy them. But then the servant stepped in and took the full force of the attack. 
Now, when you picture that baby in a manger, is that what you're thinking? Here is a baby that's going to end up taking the full force of the consequences of sin on himself. That's what we should be thinking. Because we distort the reality of the the mission of God if we just see a cute baby in a manger. The manner in which God laid our inequity on him was that God treated him as if he had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe though he was perfectly innocent of any sin. If you take that to a court of law, that's unfair, isn't it? The man, the person who is standing in the dock is completely innocent of any crime and yet takes the punishment for the crime being given to him. Even in a court of law, that seems incredibly wrong. And yet this is what Jesus did. He did nothing wrong and took everyone else's sin on himself he took the punishment and the consequence of it god did so to him so that wrath being spent and justice satisfied god could then give to the account of sinners who believe the righteousness of christ treating them as if they had done only the righteous acts of christ we don't have what we deserve we don't get what we deserve is something we've said before We deserve to not be here. We deserve to have been sent to hell. But through Christ, through grace, through the salvation of Jesus Christ, we are here. That's good news. Christ was a substitute so we wouldn't have to pay the price of sin with our lives. Titus 2, verse 13 to 14. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good final Spurgeon quote that's not up there but the final Spurgeon quote I'll give you this it says a spotless Saviour stands in the room of guilty sinners God lays upon the spotless saviour the sin of the guilty so that he becomes, in the expressive language of the text, sin. Then he takes off from the innocent saviour his righteousness and puts that to the account of the once guilty sinners so that the sinners become righteousness, righteousness of the highest and divinest source, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We must understand the weight of the substitute we must understand that what we were deserving we didn't get Jesus the son of God who is God was born into the world as a saviour and was the saviour he was always intended to be and so we go back to why we've started uh, this uh, two part sermon When we look at that baby in a manger, do we see a baby to be gooey and silly over? Or do we see the Son of God who was sent to take on all iniquity of mankind so we would not have to pay the penalty of sin, which is death, with our very own lives? It is a mixed mixed response that we should have to seeing the baby manger, the baby in a manger. 
It is one of joy and and celebration that the Saviour has come. But it is one of recognition of the sinful people that we are. That God has come to take away our sin through Jesus Christ. And we did nothing to earn that. Nothing to deserve it. Let's pray. And then we're going to have some worship time together. Lord, we just want to thank you that you are sovereign, that you are above all things, in charge of all things, that all the world's authority, everything, is at your feet. And so, Lord, we want to lift up our praise and worship to you, that you have come to bring salvation, that you have paid the price of sin for those that trust in Christ Jesus and for those that are not it is a time of grace that there is an opportunity for those that have yet to know Jesus to come to him now and Lord may this be a message that is always of mixed emotions may this always be a story and account that gives us mixed emotions the joy of celebrating the arrival of the saviour but knowing that he is going to die on the cross for the, for the consequence of sin that was laid upon him who is sinless. And so, Lord, we then celebrate the resurrection. And we say, thank you, Lord, that because Jesus is alive, I can have a new life in him. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We're going to lift up our praise to you in our minds, <clears throat> in our mumbling, behind our masks. But Lord, you know of all our praise in our heart. And so we thank you, Lord, that we even get to be here and worship you. That we even get into the presence of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for all these things. Amen.